praise him. Do I want to be looking at the camera right there? That should be sorry. Let us not wallow in the valley of despair. Even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. I have a dream that one day, this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the Red Hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of the skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream that one day, right there in Alabama, Little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted. And every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain. And the crooked places will be made straight. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. This is our hope, and this is the faith that I go back to the South with. With this faith, we will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair, stone of hope. With this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into the beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together. Doing that, we will be free one day. How's it? Oh, good. You did it. Okay. <laughs> Except for that one. I was like, <laughs> Thank you. you a hug? Okay. Amen. We have such a, we have such a creative uh, tech crew and, and uh, communications department. And they did such a great job on that. That's uh, it went a great job. Amen. Give it up for them. And thanks to the Mighty Revivals for that uh, worship uh, set that they had this morning. That was excellent. That was superb. That was wonderful. I'm Greg Boy, the teaching pastor here at the, at the church, and I've uh, been gone for a couple of weeks. Um, had this crud in my lungs, nasty stuff. It's not completely gone yet, so if I have a hack attack in the middle of this thing, just excuse me, and I'll, I'll, I'll get back to it. Uh, but it's, it's, it's really good to be back. I, I just want to say that... I'm so grateful and thankful for, for, for Dan and for Shauna for the message they brought the last two weeks. Weren't that incredible? Just anointed. Some people are probably wondering, Greg should get sick more often, man. That's some good preaching that was there. But we're, we're blessed to have such depth and, and uh, just such, such good teaching pastors here at the church. I'm extremely really blessed about the whole thing. I uh, also want to give a shout out to our MLK team. We have a team that, uh, of, of folks, uh, Lynette, and Mary, and Abraham, and, and Dylan and Jerry, and Emily are part of this team, and, and they put this thing together. And so let's give, a, give it up for them. They were, 
they, you have the, the dream out there in the, in the, in the gathering area. Uh, take some time maybe and, and, and read that and they get some history back there. Uh, just really, really good stuff. One of the things that, that came out of, uh, I, I met with the team one time and we were talking about some various issues. And uh, one person asked, really, how diverse is Woodland Hills? And at first, I initially just kind of gave a response about our demographics. I think we're like 75% white, 25% non-white, something like that. But she said, no, I mean, how diverse are we really when we come together? Um, how culturally diverse are we? And, and, and this lady was just expressing a kind of a, a wish that there was a little more diversity in our culture here at the church and our worship. Now, this morning, I mean... Those last two songs, if you close your eyes, you might think you're in a black church. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Uh, and, 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 and she was just saying, I just kind of miss. Uh, I, I wish there was a little more freedom. Somebody say amen. I wish there was a little more freedom. We had some folks up here dancing. That was great. And, and, and that's permissible. And she says, I, I wish I didn't feel so weird. I, I like to say amen when I agree with something because I get excited. And, and, but it seems like you know, people think that's kind of weird here. Uh, we got to normalize that. This is a place where it's okay to say amen. Amen? Yeah. It's okay to say amen. And, and, and the way, see, when we say that you are welcome here, we mean you, with your culture, with everything that's a part of you, you're welcome here. And, and, and it, it, it ought, this ought to be kind of mixing things up here. Um, I think we, we can be stretched a little more there. You know, musically, you know, this morning we had a lot of black gospel music, and that was fantastic. Uh, we try to do as much of that as possible. There's certain restrictions there in terms of musicians' abilities and whatever. But uh, see, the kingdom, as I will say here in a little bit later, it, it, it's all about different people coming together and, and rallying, rallying around the love of God, uniting around the love of God. And, and, and you know, there are some folks who just like their little homogenous world and they like it their way and they like their kind of music style and they like their kind of worship style and all the rest. And they might get a little irritated, uh, you know, because someone's doing it a little differently. Too bad, man. This is the kingdom we're talking about here, right? And we got to learn to love and appreciate each other's differences and different cultures and celebrate that. So I want you to feel free. To, I, you know, I come from a Pentecostal background, all right? I like some amens. In, in, in the black church, I've only preached in black church uh, two times. And it was the funnest preaching I've ever had because they just draw it out of you. It's like, I remember the, the first time I preached in this all black church. And I got about three lines into it. And someone in the front row stood up and said, you know what you're talking about. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> we don't do that in the white church. <laughs> I said, thank you. I'm glad that you think so. <laughs> now, takes a little lot, Mary. Listen up here. If you're preaching to an amen in congregation, the sermons can take a little longer. <laughs> it just kind of, they pull it out of you, you know, and it's just, it gets going. You might find yourself going in directions that you didn't plan on. Anyways, just feel free to say amen. Amen. The message this morning is, is hope in action. The MLK team thought that'd be a good thing to focus on. And I want to start by talking about uh, King's letter from a Birmingham jail. In April 1963, King was arrested, along with many other people, in Birmingham, Alabama, for breaking unjust segregationist Jim Crow laws. King spent two weeks in solitary confinement, and that happened quite a few times in his life. The day after he was arrested, a clergy printed an article in a newspaper called A Call to Unity. 
And these white clergy, all of them white, they sided with King, they sided with him in terms of his cause. Yes, we, we, we should be moving towards social, or racial equality, racial justice. That's good. But they strongly denounced King and the movement, civil rights movement, for being outsiders and agitators and disruptors. Yes, it's good to be moving towards uh, racial equality, but these white clergy said, but we got, you have to be patient. These things take a lot of time, and we have to trust uh, the, the, the legal system and, and let this process work through naturally instead of breaking laws and, and whatever. Got to trust the system. Because you black folks know that the systems work so well for you up to this point, right? Just kidding. That wasn't in the article. But that's what they were asking for. And see, King then, somebody, even though he was in solitary confinement, someone was able to sneak that newspaper in to, to, to Martin Luther King with a pencil. And King read this call to unity by these eight clergy, and then he wrote a response on the, on the, the corners of the newspaper. And the, the newspaper was just covered with his comments, and somebody were able to smuggle that out, and that, someone printed that. It was his response to these eight clergy. And the letter from a Birmingham jail is brilliant on so many levels. It really is just a stunning, brilliant work. This guy writing in this jail cell, first of all, he comes out, and he's just... He had a PhD in theology, and he comes out and he just starts shooting, he starts quoting all these famous white thinkers, uh, because he knows that these are the people that these white clergy will respect. So he's quoting Socrates and Reinhold Niebuhr and Paul Tillich, and he just goes on. The guy, he, he, off the top of his head, doesn't have any reference tools or anything like that, doesn't have an internet to research things. From memory, he's quoting these folks, and uh, he makes his case by quoting their authorities, kind of like the Apostle Paul did in Acts 17, when he's speaking to these, uh, these, these pagan philosophers. Paul, the Apostle Paul, quotes pagan philosophers, because that's who these people look up to. So also Martin Luther King, he, he, he takes them out of their own game. And uh, he says, your own white authors support me. But the main thing he does in this letter is he expresses his disappointment with the white church. Um... I'm going to quote from this letter, I and mean, it's some length, but I think it's, it's, I can quote it at length because it's worth it. It's, uh, he's in their face. Listen to this. King says this. I had this strange feeling when I was suddenly catapulted, catapulted into the leadership of the bus protest in Montgomery several years ago. I had this feeling that we would have the support of the white church. Instead, some few have been outright opponents, refusing to understand the freedom movement and misrepresenting its leaders. All too many others have been more cautious than courageous and have remained silent behind the anesthetizing security of stained glass windows. In spite of my shattered dreams of the past, I came here to Birmingham with the hope that the white religious leadership of this community would see the justice of our cause and with deep moral concern serve as the channel through which our just grievances could get to the power structure. I had hoped that each of you would understand, but again, I have been disappointed. In the midst of blatant injustices inflicted upon the Negro, I have watched white churches stand on the sidelines and merely mouth pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities. I love that phrase. In the midst of the mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic injustice, I've heard so many ministers say, quote, those are social issues which the gospel has nothing to do with. And I have watched so many churches commit themselves to a completely otherworldly religion 
which made a strange distinction between bodies and souls, the sacred and the secular. And listen to this. But the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If the church of today does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authentic ring, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. I I meet young people every day whose disappointment with the church has risen to outright disgust. Somebody say amen. Amen. Lord have mercy, because mercy is what we need. See, King was disappointed with the white church, primarily because King knew better than most that fighting racism and practicing reconciliation is what the church is called to do. In fact, it's what God's people throughout history have been called to do. It's a central part of the storyline of the Bible. It goes back to Genesis 12, when God called out Abraham. And he says to Abraham, your descendants, through your descendants, all the nations and all the families of this world will be blessed. Right from the get-go. God's eye has always been on the whole world. And God raised up Israel, the descendants of Abraham, to be the means by which God would reunite the world. They were called to be a priesthood to the world and to draw the nations into this covenant with Yahweh, to share their covenant with all the nations of this world. It's always been God's dream. Israel was chosen not with the exception of others or over and against all the other nations. They were chosen for the sake of all the other nations because God's always had his eye on the whole of humanity. We get a snippet, a little peekaboo of this, uh, of this uh, uh, dream of God, of uniting the people in Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10. We read this. After this, John says, I looked, and there was a great multitude that no one could count, innumerable. And they were from every nation, from all tribes and peoples with languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white with palm branches in their hands. It's a symbol of worship. And they cried out in a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne throne and to the Lamb. From every tribe, every tongue. This is God's ultimate dream having all humanity united in love of him and love for one another. The love of God just refracted throughout the the, the human race. That's God's dream. It is the central reason why Jesus died. One of the central reasons why Jesus gave his life on the cross, to bring about this reconciliation. Um, We read this in Ephesians 2. The Apostle Paul says, For Christ is our peace. In his flesh... He's talking about what happened on the cross here. In his flesh, he has made both Jew and Gentile into one and has broken down the dividing wall. That is the hostility between us. Abolishing the law with its commands and ordinances that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace and might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death that hostility through it. Paul here is speaking specifically about the distinction between Jews and Gentiles. Because from a Jewish perspective, that's the main division among people groups. But it covers all the divisions among people groups. All the walls of hostility that have been erected to divide people from one another, to set people against one another. And see, Israel, though it was called to be a chosen nation to reach the rest of the world, they began to interpret 
their chosenness as sort of, they're just sort of special before God. So they began to look down on other nations. Instead of building bridges to these other nations to unite them, they, they, they erected this wall of hostility, this wall of sort of superiority. And they end up judging the very people that they're supposed to be reaching. Jesus comes, and he is the embodiment of Israel. The one true faithful Jew, he embodies the call of Israel. That's why the Apostle Paul says that all the promises of a God to Israel are fulfilled in him. And so Christ fulfills this mission to reach the world. It's one of the reasons he gave his life, to reach the world. Jesus tears down walls, and, and, and by means of the cross, he creates this one new humanity that's free of all these walls of hostility, free of these divisions, free of this, these judgments. In fact, Paul tells us in Colossians 1 that by means of the cross, God is at work to reconcile everything and everyone in heaven and on earth, to reconcile them back to God and to reconcile them to one another, thus bringing about shalom. God's vision for shalom is this harmonized humanity gathered together in the love of God. So Jesus died to tear down the walls of hostility, and racism is a wall of hostility. Somebody say amen. amen. So Jesus died to end racism. For the central reasons why he died. And the central call of the church is to manifest everything Jesus died for. So a central call of the church, if Jesus died to reconcile all people, then you better believe that it's the job of the church to be about reconciling all people. Hallelujah. Tearing down those walls that divide folks and reconciling them together in harmony in God's love. Hallelujah. Jesus died for this. And that means, folks, if Jesus died for it, it, it ending racism is part of the atonement. That puts ending racism on the same level as forgiveness of sins, because Jesus died for that too. Jesus died to bring about the forgiveness of sins. And so if you think it would be heresy for any church to refuse to preach the forgiveness of sins, or to refuse to practice forgiving sins, if that would be a heresy, then you can't help but conclude that it's also a heresy to not preach that Jesus died to end racism. Somebody say amen. It's heresy. And what's kind of sad and kind of ironic, if not tragic, is that at least among conservative evangelical Christians, the bar for being considered a heretic is pretty low. I should know, all right? It's pretty low. And yet you don't find folks calling out heresy when people, when churches refuse to be preaching. The end of racial reconciliation. I know four people, I've dialogued with them, I have walked them through this, who after the George Floyd murder, White, white folks, they stood up and they preached against this and against systemic racism, and they were fired for it. They were told, hey, they, that this is a, a social issue. Uh, this is a political issue. It's not the kind of thing that we're supposed to be involved in, and, 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 and so you're not allowed to preach on that anymore. And these four folks, to their credit, said, well, then, then I got to go. Uh, I got to obey the, the, the law of God rather than the laws of man. Amen. They were like, go for that. Because that's heresy. In fact, think about this. The word atonement, it means at one minute. To make one again. And, and, and the problem is that we in the West, we tend to think of uh, the atonement, what Jesus died for, is on an individual basis. Oh, he, Jesus died to make us one with God, to reconcile us to God. And that's true. <laughs> but he did so much more. As I say in Colossians 1, God is at work by means of the cross to, to bring about reconciliation of everything and everyone in heaven and on earth. The at one applies to everything. <laughs> Jesus died to reconcile everything. Hallelujah. And um, it's just truncated to think that it's about a little individual thing. 
This is the very concept of salvation. This is why in, in the Bible they speak about salvation or being made at one in three tenses, past, present, and future. Yes, we have been saved, but the Bible also talks about us being saved, and we shall be saved. So this is the process of at oneing. We have been at one with God and with one another, in principle on the cross, but now in the present we are supposed to be at oneing with one another, at oneing with God and at oneing with one another. So racial reconciliation and all forms of peacemaking, all forms of reconciliation, are central to what the church is called to do. So to say that King was disappointed is an understatement. This is a massive failure of cosmic proportions for the church to fail to preach this thing that Jesus died for. So King understood better than most that the church should be at the front lines of the civil rights movement. Not because they're politically aligned with that group or this group, but because they believe in the Bible. Because the church believes in the Bible, it ought to be on the front line of social justice. Because the church follows the way of Jesus, it ought to be on the front lines of social justice. Because the church believes in the teachings of Jesus, it ought to be on the front lines of social justice. Somebody say amen. Because Jesus died for it, the church ought to be at the front lines of social justice. It's got nothing but nothing but nothing to do with politics. This is the Bible. This is theology. This is the call of God on the church. The king was disappointed. Church should be at the front lines. The truth is that the black church was on the front lines. Um, sometimes people forget this, but the civil rights movement was birthed out of the black church. And most of the leaders, early leaders of the civil rights movement, they were black pastors. Uh, you can make the case that this is the most, so the most socially significant thing that the church as a whole has ever done in its history. An incredible movement. The white church, not so much. And to this day, in some ways, King's message is prophetic. Either you, either you live out the gospel and, it's, and you're relevant, or you're irrelevant. And, 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 and you'll just become a, a fossilized museum. Uh, young folks are going to get disgusted with the irrelevance. You preach this gospel, but nothing happens as a result of it. Uh, to a large degree, let's just say it, the church is still, the white church is still more cautious than it is courageous. White church is still to a large degree silent behind this anesthetizing security of stained glass windows. To a large degree, the white church still sees race issues as, this, this, as a social issue that the gospel has very little to do with. And to a too large of a degree, the white church is still mouthing pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities. To say it's a disappointment is an understatement. So let me ask this question. What did King see, and what did the, the folks in the movement, the civil rights movement, see that the white church just didn't see? And again, there were wonderful exceptions, but to the, by and large, the white church didn't get it. What did they see? And I submit to you that there's a number of things you could provide as an answer to that question, but the main thing that King saw and that the white church to a large degree did not see, it was expressed four months later. August 28, 1963, when Martin Luther King gave his famous I Have a Dream speech. Um, a little interesting side note. That part of the speech was at the very end of his speech on the Washington Memorial. This 34-year-old guy gets up and he preaches to 200, some estimate 250,000 folks. It was the largest gathering at the Washington Memorial uh, in history up to that point. And he, he was the last of the speakers. There were 16 speakers that day. And it was 87 degrees. And uh, it got, every speaker was supposed to have five minutes, and not one of them stuck to that time limit. And so it was getting drawn on, and, and, and some folks had even left. It, it, it was just too hot. 
and uh, standing out there in the sun. And this is before they had those giant, you know, screens where you could see the person. So all the speakers were a little dot up there. King got up, and, and, and he was giving his speech, and by some accounts, the speech was falling kind of flat. Everyone was just so tired. It was, the energy was just sort of sucked out of the, the gathering. And as he was getting towards the end, um, I think her name was Micaiah Jackson, the famous gospel singer. Uh, and, uh, and, and she said, Martin, tell him about your dream. Uh, they had had a discussion earlier, uh, several days earlier, as their, he had a speechwriter putting together this speech. And they knew it was going to be the most important speech of his career up to this point. And there's a debate about whether he should include that I have a dream part. Because he'd, he'd, he'd spoken that several times in, in, in previous messages, and he didn't want to be redundant. And so he was going to leave that out. But the last minute, she says, she hollers behind him. He, he paused, and she goes, tell him about your dream. We want to hear about the dream. And Martin Luther King goes, I had a dream. And then the thing just takes off. <laughs> it, just, it just takes off. It's, it's just beautiful. Um, I see this dream on one level. On one level, this is a dream or it's a vision about the end of history, about the coming of the kingdom of God. When, when he says things like, all the mountains shall be laid low and the valleys shall be exalted and the rough plains shall be made smooth and, and the crooked plains shall be made straight. He's talking, you know, apocalypse. This is the kind of thing that's only going to happen when, when Jesus returns and purges this world and sets up his eternal kingdom. But it's also clear in this dream that this wasn't something that Martin Luther King thought we should wait around for. And someday it's going to happen, I can't wait for that to happen, and then just let it go. No, King began to see this ultimate dream begin to be incarnated. His hope was that it would begin to be embodied in the present. And so the dream, while it's about the end of history, it's also a dream about children playing together in Alabama, black children and white children playing together. And and, and it's it's a dream about uh, folks learning to appreciate one another's differences and working together. Uh, it's, It's a dream. About America finally living up to its promise to treat all people as equal. Uh, it, 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 it's a dream that is embodied in the present. And so this vision there was not one that they're going to wait to have happen. It's one that inspires this hope, which motivates this action. And it was that motivation that caused these folks to be willing to be arrested, to be beaten and, and not retaliate, to have dogs unleashed on them to be humiliated and mocked, to be thrown into jail and sometimes assassinated. What caused them to do this? It was this faith that they had, this dream that they had. But it wasn't a pie in the sky when we die by and by sort of a thing. It's like, you know, this is God's ideal, and so this is what we're to be working for now. We're to be embodying this now. This is what Jesus died for, and the church's job is to manifest this in the present now. What Martin Luther King had, and what his followers had that so many of the white Christians did not have, was faith. Because this is what faith is. Uh, It's faith that that, that what Jesus died to accomplish will be accomplished. It's faith that if Jesus died to reconcile all things, then at some point all things will be reconciled, and it's faith that God wants to use us to get there. The means of getting there. I I teach on this all the time because it's so important. But it's Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. We have this definition of faith. Listen to this now. This is Darby's translation. I think it's by far the best translation. He says, faith is a substantiation, hypostasis, of things that are hoped for and the conviction, elenkos, of things not seen. So faith is seeing something that you believe to be true and you anticipate in the future, but seeing it as a substantial reality, as a real thing. You enter into it as though it had already happened. And when you envision this future thing as though it already happened, 
as vividly as possible, it creates in you a conviction that it will be so. And that conviction drives you to start moving in that direction. That's what faith is. It's faith that motivates hope, that inspires action. All of the heroes of faith in, in Hebrews 11 model this. And so the author of Hebrews sums up the heroes of faith in chapter 11 by saying this. All of these heroes died in faith without having received the promises. But from a distance they saw and greeted them. From a distance. He's not talking geographically here. He's talking they saw something in their mind's eye. And this is what faith is all about. In their imagination. They imagined the promises of God being fulfilled. And it caused them to live in a different way. They confessed that they were strangers and foreigners on the earth. For people who speak in this way make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. As it is, they desire a better homeland, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Indeed, he has prepared for them a city. They will someday get what they are marching towards. So they have a vision. They have a dream. And they hold that in their mind's eye as a substantial reality. And it causes this conviction that it will be so, and it leads them to live differently. That's why they're strangers and foreigners in this world. They're living differently. They're not living for the kind of things that people usually live for. No, they see beyond that. They've got faith. That's what faith is all about. So the question I want us to be asking this morning is, and I'm addressing this particularly at us white folks, but it applies to all of us. Do we have faith? Do we have faith that what Jesus died to accomplish will be accomplished? And do we have faith that God wants to use us to bring about that accomplishment? Or let me put it like this. Do we, do we share Martin Luther King's dream? When you think about heaven, and when you think about heaven, don't think something up there in the clouds. Think out there in the future. This is synonymous with the new earth, when God's going to renew this entire earth when he returns. So when you think about that final state, when, when all that God's been working for has finally been accomplished, and the creation is the way, finally the way that God always wants the creation to be, uh, when you think about that, do you envision a diversity of people coming together from every tribe and every nation and every tongue? And worshiping around the throne and being united in the love of God. Having been at one with one another. At one with God and at one with one another. Do you envision that? Because if diversity is not part of your vision of the final state of affairs that God's driving towards, then you've got a seriously truncated idea of heaven. This is a central part of the storyline. The beauty of heaven. Part of the beauty of heaven is that, that the diversity of folks refract the love of God in different ways. The, the unity is, is, is one of the main points. So Paul says that the sufferings of this present age can't be compared to the glory which God has in store for those who love him. The glory that's going to be revealed to us. Which simply tells us, if the glory that's going to be revealed when God finally arrives at this final state of affairs, if the glory is going to render all the suffering of this world, think about this, all the suffering irrelevant, insignificant, not even worth talking about, that just tells you that heaven's got to be one glorious place. It's going to be unimaginably glorious. And a central part of that beauty and that glory is the, the diversity that God's going to bring together. The unity of the human race. The one new humanity that Jesus died to create. So I'm going to end by first having us practice this faith. I'm going to lead us in kind of a meditation. I'm practicing faith. And then I'm going to just give four very quick little action points that the MLK team thought would be good to uh, encourage folks to get involved in. So let's do this meditation. Uh, just sit in your chair. Be comfortable. Get comfortable. I encourage you to close your eyes and just kind of shut out everything else and take a deep breath. 
and it's let it go. And knowing that you are right this moment surrounded by the perfect love of God, as you breathe in, breathe in God's love. Just receive God's love. Let it saturate your being. Let it be to your soul what air is to your lungs. Breathe it in. And hold it for a moment with gratitude, giving thanks, and then let it out. And as you continue just to breathe calmly in and out, I want you right now to think about something in the near future that you're looking forward to. Maybe it's a, a vacation. Just think about it. Maybe you're going to take a hike with a friend. Maybe you're looking forward to watching the Vikings win this afternoon, going to a playoff party. Maybe you're looking forward to a loved one visiting you or you're visiting a loved one. Maybe you're looking forward to a better job that you're going to get. Just enjoy, enjoy, just envision that. However you do this, just think about this and think about it as concretely as possible. Uh, think about it in a way that makes you excited. Because see, what you're doing now is you're having faith that you're going to get together with this loved one. Faith that you're going to be at this playoff party. Faith that you're going to take this vacation. See it as though it was already happening, as though you're in it. Step into it. And notice how that hypostasis, that concrete envisioning of your future, creates in you this elenkos, this conviction. And it gets you excited. And if there's preparation to be done, it will motivate you to start preparing for that event. And I, 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 I'm having you do this just to, so you get, you get familiar. This is how you do anticipating the future. This is how you do faith. And so, still doing that same faith, I want you to extend the future out. In fact, extend the future to the end of the age. When all that God and God's people have been working for is, are, is finally accomplished. Envision the end of the age when God's love will have burned up everything that's inconsistent with love. And so this is the time when all hatred xenophobia and racism has been burned away and tribalism and toxic nationalism and all negative judgments and all sin have been burned away in you and in everyone else. Can you see it? Envision it. What does that look like? Ask the Spirit to give you this vision of the promised land. And it ought to be unimaginably glorious. However glorious you're imagining it, just know that it's better than that. It's so great that all the sufferings of this present age can't be compared to it. And now, Holy Spirit, help us here. And help those who are online listening to this. Help us to see this enormous, innumerable gathering around the throne and around the Lamb. Gathered around the perfect love of God and united by the love of God. Black folks, white folks, brown folks, yellow folks from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every ethnic group. Can you see it? White Europeans and Japanese and Chinese and people from Somalia and Zimbabwe. Can you see it? From Chile, Portugal, Kenya, Nigeria, Russia. Can you see it? Cambodia, Mexico, North Korea, South Korea, and every other nation and every other people group united together. And can you see that in the love of God, they're dancing and they're rejoicing and they're worshiping together. And they're learning how to not just tolerate, but how to love and celebrate each other's particular cultures and traditions and values. In Revelation 21, it tells us that the kings of this world will bring in the glory of their nations into the heavenly city. Can you see this? 
Which means that the differences between the nations and the people groups and the ethnic groups, those differences, when God's kingdom is fully established, they'll no longer be a problem. Rather, each, each one will contribute their unique beauty. They, they reflect the love of God in a unique way. The glory of God is, is reflected in the glory of the nations in all of their diversity, and that's what makes it such a beautiful thing. Can you see it? Envision it. And remind yourself that Jesus died to bring about this reality, and someday it will be so. But as you're envisioning this, and just enjoy this vision of the diversity of heaven coming together. All wars have ended, no more tears, no more sorrow, no more oppression, no, no, oppression, no more injustice. But this is not a vision that we're to wait for. Rather, it's one that we know to be true, so we long for it, we hope for it, and therefore we take actions to bring it into being. If you're holding this vision there, it ought to motivate you to now live differently as foreigners and strangers in this world. Whereas others, maybe it's like to live in their little homogenous bubble. When you get this vision of what God's will is in the future, it creates in you this elenkos, this conviction that it will be so, and it motivates you to start living differently. And now I want to ask this, this question. And if you're not ready to do this, then, then that's fine. Just receive God's grace where you're at. But if you're a follower of Jesus, I want to encourage you to right now commit to being used by God to bring that reality that you're now envisioning to bring that reality about as much as possible. Will you commit to being used by God to be an at-one-er? A vehicle of reconciliation. A means by which the walls of hostility in our world are torn down. And that is walls of hostility between ethnic groups, but also between political ideologies and every other thing that divides human beings. We're called to be peacemakers. Can you commit to being a peacemaker, however God will use you to be a peacemaker, a reconciler? Lord, seal this commitment on our hearts. Help us not to forget it, but to hold it, cherish it, and guard it. Holy Spirit, burn it into our psyches and burn it into our souls. <laughs> this commitment to live in ways that bring about God's dream of reconciliation for all people. Amen. 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 Okay, four little quick things. Action steps. Number one, uh, I encourage us to keep the faith. That just means practice this. Dream the dream. Dream. The, spend some time dreaming that dream. I think it's good just to think about heaven anyways, just because this world is so dang discouraging sometimes. You need encouragement just to know that, you know, love wins in the end. This is just envisioning love winning in the end. It will do you so good to do this. But as you do this, make the diversity a central part of your vision of heaven. Because that's how it is in the Bible. Number two, as Sean announced, educate yourself. Participate in this learnathon, all right? Um, you know, I had a master's at Yale and a PhD from Princeton, but it wasn't until 20 years after I graduated that I really got to learn about the racial history of this, uh, of this country. There's so much I didn't know, but I didn't know what I didn't know. And so I encourage you to just book up on this. Learn about it. It changes how you view the present when you understand the press, the past. You can't take things out of context. The, the meaning of things today, a lot of it has to do with what's going on in the past that's led up to it. To understand that, you got to know it. So on history and, 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 and practices that you can have that, that may, can make you a, a, a reconciler, uh, be, be learning on that. Study it. Number three, and the, the, the MLK team really stressed this one is important. Become increasingly multicultural in your own life. And this applies 
primarily to white folks. Because non-white folks in America, you've got to be multicultural. <laughs> you've got to know white culture and, and, and your own culture, and maybe some other cultures as well. Whereas white folks, uh, this is becoming less true as the country becomes more diverse, but, but it's possible to stay in a little homogenous bubble and, 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 and not be multicultural at all. If we're to be giving people a sneak preview of this coming kingdom, then we've got to weave diversity into our life. So, so learn about, and I encourage you to learn and, and learn how to appreciate other kinds of music. Maybe intentionally listen to music that's not in your comfort zone. Try to appreciate the music of different cultures, the literature of different cultures, the stories of different cultures. Go out of your way to diversify your life. Um, in the flow of your life, always be thinking. You have one of the things on the table that you consider as you go about your life, the need to be uh, mixing it up with different cultures. Maybe it will change where you shop or where you get your haircut, where you buy your gas. Um, uh, just think, think in terms of those little things. For some folks, it might adjust where you live. Where's God calling you to live? Uh, some folks have uh, changed their location just so they can be more diverse. Uh, you might think about visiting a black church or some non-white church to, to just learn how to appreciate how other people worship. I, uh, several months ago, went to the Condoleezza service here on Friday night, and uh, it, it, it's so different from the way uh, we do church, we white folks do church in particular, but it was so beautiful. And, 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 and just to come to appreciate the different ways of, of, of worshiping. And the final thing I'll just say is practice hospitality. Uh, all of us need to be doing this. It's a central king, kingdom value uh, to all people at all times, being hospitable, making space in our life to welcome others. But I think it's especially important for those of us who, who, who come and are physically present here uh, on a weekend service to, to be very hospitable to one another. And in particular, for white folks to be very hospitable to non-white folks. Because, see, it's easier to go to a, ch a church service when you're part of the majority. It, it sometimes can be challenging if you're one of the minority. And the things that you might have to give up coming here. And let me just say to the, to the non-white folks that are part of Woodland Hills Church, thank you for being part of this body. And I want to say you are welcome. You and all of your culture and your particular, we really do welcome you. You, us. Amen. And, and, and be open to, to uh, you know, how... Uh, being hospitable in other ways, maybe inviting them over, uh, getting to know their life. Uh, what is their neighborhood like? And, and, and befriending them, however it looks. Um, make cultivating diversity in your life a high priority. And uh, uh, put on display all that Jesus died to have happen. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. All God's people said, Amen. 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 Hallelujah. Someday we will all be free at last. Don't forget, we have the, the abuse uh, on Tuesdays at 4 o'clock, is that right? And, uh, and then with the gathering groups, you can check out on that line. I encourage folks to be part of that. They'll discuss the message. And you get to talk to people who are outside the state, outside the country sometimes, and it's, 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 it's beautiful. And is that all? And, and we have prayer available, um, either online if you're a part of our parishioners, or here in the, in the building if, if you're present here. Father, thank you for sending Jesus to die, to make us at one with you and to make us at one with each other. As we live out our life, help us to manifest that truth, practice that truth, live out that truth, doing it with joy, doing it with optimism, knowing that someday all that you have died to accomplish will be accomplished. And thank you for using us in the process of getting there. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. Go out and love on the world.